No, but I was like literally about to start packing my bags and buy this flight to Barcelona and leave. I don't know why you didn't. Same. Basically, listeners, there is this website called Secret Flying. Not sponsored at all. It's just, (laughs) I'm a fan. Because it's like a blog, basically. And they find flight deals that are like error fares or like things that are just really cheap for no fucking reason. And you have to jump when you see them. Yeah. And one of them we I saw was Dallas to Barcelona, Spain, round trip for $270. Yeah. Like, usually that would probably be closer to a six to $800 flight. The nice thing about it is it's not, like, sketchy. Because it's a blog, you, like, click on the deal and click on some example dates, and it just takes you to, like... Delta's website right. with all the stuff autofilled or like the the airline's website. So you're not booking it through this third party you don't trust. You're booking it through the airline. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there's one similar that I've used. It's called Cheap DFW. Again, not sponsored, but it's the one I used and that's where I got the ticket. I'm going to Rome next year and my ticket was $300 round trip to go to freaking Rome from Dallas. And I bought it through Priceline. So like, it's not anything sketchy as normal. It's how you would normally plan a trip. But anyway, mm-hmm. so y'all should absolutely follow those because that's how I plan trips now. I plan it around yeah. like, oh, I can get this cheap ticket. Like literally to go to Europe, I feel like I won't spend more than $700 on a ticket now ever because I know how cheap you can get it. You just have to be flexible with when you go. And one thing to note, so on like Secret Flying, you can type in the name of the city you'd fly out of and search just to get all the options. And for cities like Austin, which is a smaller airport, there are some options. You know, I think I saw one that was like Austin to New York round trip for like 90 bucks, uh, things like that. But if you're in driving distance to like a bigger hub airport, like for me, Dallas or Houston has so many more options because they're the bigger national airports in yeah. Texas. Yeah. So strongly recommend checking it out. I, sh- I should have bought it because I want to go to Barcelona now. You should check and see if it's still live. Sometimes it happens. Um, well, hi everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And we want to travel. Always, always. I always Always. want to travel. It's literally like one of my top passions. And I love going places I've never been before. It's so fun to me. And staying in Airbnbs, exploring the culture, like just jumping into someplace as if I were to live there and just seeing what life would be like. So it's my favorite. Plus one. (laughs) I love how I had no idea that was the new millennial speak. I've never heard of it. Plus one means like me too, right? Yeah. So I, maybe it's not millennial and it's just work speak, but. Maybe it's Gen Z. I don't know. uh, Well, I don't know because I'm not a Gen Z. I'm solidly a millennial. But like, you know, if someone's like, Susan did such a great job on this presentation. I'm like, oh, plus one. It's like, I agree. Not not necessarily me too. Um, Can I start saying like, yes, gold star. Because that would have made more sense with Susan doing great in her presentation. Just saying. Well, okay, maybe that's a shitty example. Or if someone's <laughs> like, hey, you know, I, I'm i having this issue at work, but here's this workaround. I'd be like, oh, plus one. It's yeah. just like, I don't, it's like I've upvoting liter- it. I literally have never heard that before in my life. So cool. Okay, well, maybe it's just where I work. <laughs> Quite possibly. Well, we have a really exciting episode for you guys. I'm excited about this one. Me too. And so excited. In fact, I'm going to jump straight into the topic. Yes, tell us. So our topic for this episode is a Patreon picks topic from Vicky. Yes. And Vicky actually chose both the topic and one of the cases. Mm -hmm. Uh, She highlighted this case was like, I'd love to hear this one. So the case will be one that I'm doing. Uh, You'll hear it after Brittany's case. I'm not going to give that away. But the topic is dormitory murders. Yes, and this is a very interesting topic, I think, because one of the most well-known uh, dorm murders is Ted Bundy and what he did at the Kai Omega house in Florida. Yeah. And we've obviously already covered Ted Bundy, so this was, 
it was actually very eerie finding a case um, along this topic because it's so, they're pretty gruesome and they're generally involving multiple victims. Um, and usually young people. Well, yeah, yeah, because it's a college town or a college campus. And so this one is a very different topic, I think. So I yeah. I really liked this idea. Thank you so much, Vicky. This was a really interesting one to explore. Yeah. And one of the parts that really pulls me in is, I don't know, the idea of it because a dorm or just a place where a bunch of people live that are strangers, like by nature, the killings would seem to be random. Because right. Because the people who live in a dorm or an apartment building or whatever is random. Yeah. You know, it's not a family or a group of these people. It's people who happen to live together. And so the randomness of it all is, I just find that so interesting and terrifying. It is. And it's like in those moments, you know, you may live with someone that's not really a friend, but in that moment, if something's happening, it's like you're instantly connected and very close to that person forever. Yeah. Whether you survive mm -hmm. or not. And also I have lived in dorms for two years. Yeah. You know, my freshman year of college, I lived in the regular dorms. And then when I studied abroad in Norway, I lived in dorms there and very different experience. My freshman year, I didn't like the people on my floor. I also didn't know any of them and yeah. I wasn't in a frat. So then in Norway, completely different story because most people on my floor were international students and became some of my best friends. Yeah, definitely. And then at the end of the hall, there was a family because the way the dorm was set up is the room at the end of the hall was like for families. Yeah. So it was like a wife, husband, and their child. And I was like, hello. <laughs> <laughs> it yeah. was always weird because I'm like, you know, getting up, getting ready for class, like hungover as shit. <laughs> And mom's like walking her, I don't know, like five-year-old to school. And I'm like, this is weird. That is really weird. Yeah, I've also lived in dorms twice. Once my freshman year and once in grad school when I studied abroad in London. And that was really interesting because it's, you know, when you're in a dorm in freshman year of college, freshman and sophomore year, some people live a couple years. It's, you're all young and like, it's whatever. Mm -hmm. But living in a dorm when I was in my mid-20s was very interesting. Like, it was just where we... It was the easiest place for us to stay. We didn't know where else to stay in London for three months. So we just stayed in the NYU dorms. But it was pretty cool. They were set up really nice. It was like a fancy apartment with one bedroom that happened to have two twin beds. So the view was fantastic. Oh. But yeah, dormitory murders, it's really... Definitely very, very scary. Yes. And if y'all are interested in also becoming a director of an episode like Vicky, make sure to check out our Patreon page. One of our tiers, our Cabernet Sauvignon Convict tier, one of the rewards for that is being able to direct your own episode. Yeah. If you have a topic you want to hear, if you have a case you want to hear, or both. Yeah, you get to pick it. Yeah. And we'll have a couple more of these Patreon pick episodes coming up. And honestly, they're some of my favorite topics. I think some of yes. my favorite episodes are ones where we're not picking the topic. It's where you guys are picking the topics. We love it. We love having our uh, Patreon directors come in. There are also a bunch of other different tiers to check out and rewards on our Patreon for Patreon family um, include our murder mini episodes. And we also have our new upcoming wine reviews that we haven't named yet as of recording this episode, but this goes live on Tuesday and our wine reviews will be live there on the 4th. So just a couple days after this episode airs. Yes. And... We'll have a name by then. And while you're at it, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, CastBox. I think that's how you say it. We're also on Spotify. We're basically everywhere in all of the major podcast platforms. So be sure to subscribe and you'll get all of our new regular episodes every Tuesday. With Wine time? All, yeah, I was just going to say, with all of that, it is now absolutely wine time. And I picked one that is very different from what I normally go with. Um, I'm excited, also a little bit nervous, but mostly excited. So I picked a white wine. This is the 2017 Luxana Viognier from Paso Robles, California. And just look how gorgeous this bottle is. 
the label is mm-hmm. like lace and it's like Luxana makes me think it's like a um like a fancy eyeglasses company. Luxotica is the eyeglasses company. <laughs> yeah, it is. But this is not the same company. It's not glasses wine? No, it's not. It's not. Because you're definitely going to have a glass with it. <laughs> okay, that was pretty Sorry. bad, but I loved it. I know. Um, no, so the Viognier, it's a really intensely aromatic white grape, and it's best known from its use in the Rhone Valley in France, but it's proven itself to be one of those grapes that grows really well in some of the world's great grape areas, which includes the Paso Robles area in California, Mm -hmm. where a lot of really amazing wine comes from. The warmer the region is, this allows the grape to fully ripen and express the flavors of the grape. And so this is... Express yourself! (laughs) It's a full-bodied white. So if you like Chardonnay, you would probably like a Viognier. Mm. And it can be oaked, which adds a few hints of vanilla, but this one is an unoaked Viognier. And the Luxana will have a beautiful floral bouquet and rich flavors of peaches, apricots, rose petals, which sounds like summer in a glass to me. So it's perfect for uh, this time of year. And the aromas are going to make it easy to pair with a lot of different seafood, as well as grilled meats, roasted meats, um, even some spicy dishes. One of the... Mm. One of the pairings that I read goes really well with this is a fresh fish dish with salsa verde um, or like a, I know, doesn't that sound delicious? Like an amazing fish taco. Think about that. Oh, a fresh fish taco Um, or even just like a very complex seafood soup. So if you have a soup and you want to pair a wine with it, this would go really well. So this wine has a lot of awards. So it won a best of show alternative white. So, you know, a grape that's not like one of your common whites, like a Sauvignon Blanc at the 2019 Hilton Head Island Wine and Food Festival International Wine Competition, which is a gigantic mouthful, but it won best of show. Two things. Alternative white sounds like uh, the music genre of all American (laughs) rejects. And two, (laughs) oh my God, it won best in show at the Yukonuba Dog show. Yeah, it was the best. So proud. Um, It's also been rated 91 points in the 2019 West Coast Wine Competition. It got a double gold medal at the 2019 Hilton Head. uh, So same as the one above where it won best in show. And then it also got a gold medal in the 2019 West Coast Wine Competition. So that's the one where it won 91 points. So in these two competitions, it like took some of the top winnings, which makes me really excited to try it because again you know i'm not the biggest white wine drinker and i think mm-hmm. that i mean to be completely honest this podcast has really opened up my perspective and i like a lot more white wines yeah. than i used to same so while you tell us about your wine i'm gonna open this and pour it so the wine i chose for this episode is the 2017 santa julia reserva mountain blend uh, and it is a blend of malbec and cabernet franc Oh my god, that Which, sounds really, really good. And you were talking about the points yours won. Mine was awarded 95 points at the Decanter World Wine Awards. I so, don't think I've ever had a 95-point wine before. Me neither. And this one was like $12, so I'm excited to see what a $12, 95-point wine tastes like. I know. But this wine comes from the Uco Valley in western central Argentina. Which Argentina is known far and wide for its Malbecs. It's some of the best Malbecs in the world. So this being a Malbec Cab Franc. Ooh. Uh, but this being a Malbec Cab Franc blend, I'm super excited. Mm-hmm. Um, so according to the vineyard, the combination of cool climate, heterogeneous soils, and altitudes as high as 1,400 meters, combined with this rich tradition of grape cultivation make this region a really unique place for producing these wines at the foot of the Andes Mountains. And this blend is 70% Malbec, 30% Cab Franc, and spends 10 months in French oak barrels. Ooh! So I, then, I love Cab Franc. It's one of my favorite grapes. Like Same. It's, it's one I don't ever have that often because it's not super easy to find common. No. But... I'm a big fan. According to a wine reviewer that I found who was talking about this one, um, he said the wine begins with pleasing aromas of plum, 
a little cranberry, blueberry, and a lovely floral and spice note with a hint of vanilla. Then the wine tastes even better than it smells, with tons of fresh dark fruit imbued with spice and coffee notes and wrapped up in a smooth, velvety, and delicious texture. The Cabernet Franc adds a great earthy dimension to the fruit from the Malbec. The coffee and spice notes come to the front on the earthy finish that features more dark, juicy fruit and even some mineral notes. So I'm so ready to get into this wine. Open that wine up because, yes, I I can't wait for you to tell me how that one tastes. Oh, it's dark. Mm Mm-hmm. Well. Oh. As you were opening yours, I was smelling mine, and it smells really good. It smells full-bodied. I know that sounds weird, but it I can tell this is a full white. Um, you can yeah. see how it's darker. It's not as yellow as a Chardonnay, but mm-hmm. it's definitely much darker than like a, a Sauvignon Blanc or a Pinot Grigio, for sure. Yeah. No, no green tones. Definitely more golden. Mine is... I mean, like a black wine, almost. It really is. It's super dark. It doesn't have that, like, ring of, like, ruby. I imagine it's a stain-your-teeth kind of wine. (laughs) Probably. All right. Well, let's cheers so we can try these. Yes. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, my gosh. Definitely very peachy. Very acidic, which I knew this one had a high acidity. Um, I can kind of feel it in the back of my cheeks where it's you know, kind of tinging a little bit, but it has not a super long finish and it's not as heavy on the tongue as I thought it would be. Like it's not as heavy as a Chardonnay would be, but this Mm -hmm. is fantastic. I know I say this about every white wine or rosé I've been having, but like by a pool out on the patio, absolutely recommend this one. I'm a bigger fan of this Viognier than I thought I would be. Uh, This is Mm -hmm. really good. Mine is incredible. It has a lot of those very, like, dry-your-mouth tannins. This would be a great wine with a steak. Oh, uh, with it being how deep and dark it was, Mm. I can see that. Now I just really want steak. (laughs) But no, it's super good. Definitely leans heavy on the non-fruity notes, so like the coffee and spice. I get a lot of those. Um, I mean, it definitely does have a base of dark fruit, but the spice in the coffee is what I taste most. It's one with a very nice lingering finish. I, Santa Julia Reserva. I'm really sad I'm not uh, getting to try that wine. And with all of that, I'm going to now jump into my case. So the dormitory murder that I picked actually has a pretty big pop culture connection. So I did Danny Rowling, also known as the Gainesville Ripper. With it apparently it being a big pop culture thing, I don't think I've ever heard of this one. Well, I will tell you in just one moment what the connection is. So the sources I used were Complex, Cosmopolitan, All That's Interesting, and Oxygen. Most of us have seen the 1996 horror film Scream, which went on to have just a ton of sequels. But did you know that that movie was actually based on a real serial killer, The Gainesville Ripper? Uh, No, actually, I didn't. Yeah, so these real-life murders, um, in the movie, these are high school students, but in reality, the murders were carried out in Gainesville, Florida in August 1990 by Danny Rowling. And this screenplay for Scream was written by Kevin Williamson, and he was this, like, fledging actor who was disturbed reading about these horrifying events that took place at the University of Florida in Gainesville over just a couple of days. And so he decided mm-hmm. to use this as the basis for the film, and it this film went on to be snapped up by the Weinstein brothers and has since grossed about $175 million dollars. And we know a lot of horror movies are actually based on real events. And this is one that I I didn't realize. It had no. a real, real events were the background and were the basis of this uh, movie. So that's my, like, interesting pop culture reference that is what first led me down the path to investigate the Gainesville Ripper. So Danny Harold Rowling was born in May 1954 to Claudia and James Rowling in Shreveport, Louisiana. Unfortunately for Danny, his 
dad never wanted children. He was a cop and he was constantly abusing his wife. So he is not, not a good dad. And because of this, Danny did not have a happy life. And when he was only one year old, his father abused him for the first time because he wasn't crawling properly. You know, because that was definitely Danny's fault for not knowing how to crawl. He's one. God, see, I feel like the guys out there were like, I don't want to get, I don't want to have kids. I'm like, well, then get a vasectomy if you don't want kids. Seriously, just do it. So when Danny's younger brother, Kevin, was born in 1955, unfortunately, this abuse just got worse. His mom, Claudia, tried to escape this very toxic marriage, but time and time again, she returned. When Danny failed the third grade for too many absences due to illness, his mom had a nervous breakdown. Danny's school counselors described him as suffering from an inferiority complex with aggressive tendencies and poor impulse control. So it sounds like he's mirroring a lot of his father's behavior. And by the time he was 11, he picked up music to cope with his abusive father. And he played the guitar and he sang hymn-like songs. At about this time when he was 11 years old, his mom was committed to a hospital after attempting to commit suicide. And this caused Danny to pick up drugs and alcohol, which of course only worsened his already very fragile mental state. When he was 14 years old, his neighbors caught him peeing into their daughter's room and his father beat him for doing that. Wait, peeing into her room? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if it was like a... Like like he was... Like hike up the window an inch and just like snake it in there or... (laughs) (laughs) I Um, I don't know if it was like from the window or if he was over there like visiting her and peed in her room and got caught. But I mean, clearly he's he's a mentally disturbed individual and he's acting out in very weird ways. Through all of this, all of his really shitty upbringing, he tried to stay in control and he would attend church, but he was struggling to hold down any type of steady job. So he decided to enlist, but the Navy wouldn't take him. So instead he joined the Air Force. But he received absolutely no comfort when he was in the military and he eventually quit the Air Force after too much drug use, which now included taking acid more than a hundred times in the the time he was in the Air Force. Oh my God. God, that's a lot of acid. It is. And, you know, following his discharge from the military, Danny did end up getting married and began what appeared to be this pretty normal life. Unfortunately, what he learned from his father is how Danny acted to his wife. So this cycle of abuse just continued. And when he was 23 years old in 1977, after being with his wife for four years, she separated from him after he threatened to kill her. And good, <laughs> good that she separated. I'm I'm glad she left. I mean, she successfully yeah. left him, unlike his mom, who was yeah. unable to leave his father. So Danny was absolutely devastated when this happened, and he turned that devastation into anger. And he raped a woman who closely resembled his ex-wife. My God! And later that year, he killed a woman in a car accident, which only troubled him further. Jesus. So. Danny was a big guy. He's like 6'2". He's massive. He's very powerful. And from the late 1970s to the 1990s, he was committing a series of petty crimes and thefts. And he turned to a series of armed robberies to get cash. And then he subsequently was in and out of criminal justice systems in Louisiana, Mississippi, Georgia, and Alabama. And he broke out of prison several times and was fired and quit jobs just as frequently. So his life is very tumultuous. Like, things are always happening. He's in and out of jail. He's finding new jobs, quitting jobs, being fired. Like, nothing is consistent. Yeah, there's nothing steady in his life. No. So that, that's not good for his mental state. Like there's no sense of routine that's going on here. So while Danny was still in Shreveport, the bodies of three victims were found. 24-year-old Julie Grissom, her father Tom, and her nephew, 8-year-old Sean. They were all killed around the time Danny lost his last job and returned home in vengeance. So the Grissom family, William, Julie, and Sean, they had just been preparing dinner They're just at home when a man broke into their apartment, 
stabbed them all to death. He raped Julie and posed her, and there were bite marks found on her breasts. What the fuck? So, and this is just a random-ass family. Yeah, it's a random family. In May 1990 is when Danny just completely broke. And he shot his 58-year-old father twice, once in the stomach and once in the face, and nearly killed him. So his dad, James, did survive, but he lost an eye and an ear. Wow. And in late July 1990, Danny changed his identity with papers he stole after breaking into someone's house, and he fled Shreveport. And he took a bus to Sarasota, Florida, to start a new life as Michael Kennedy Jr. I mean, that's a pretty basic name. Yeah. I mean, he just completely just up and changed his identity from papers he literally stole from someone else. I feel like I would be shit at, like, changing my identity. Because I feel like if someone was, like, I'm like, oh, now I go by Gordon O'Donoghue. That's my fake name. That's a that's really, really bad fake name. My fake okay, name I'm sorry. is, well, it's Jessica, but I've never thought of a last name. Let's let's think. So my fake name is definitely Jessica Simmons. That's boring. But I guess a fa- I feel like a fake that's name, what you new want. name should be. Okay, so I'll just, I'll be like Ben Roberts. Yeah. But I feel like, okay, so now I'm Ben walking around the street and someone goes, if, like, someone talking to someone else, like, la la, Tyler, I'd be like, what? Oh, just kidding. I don't, I used to know someone by that name. I'd be shit at it. Yeah. Unfortunately, running away to Florida, it did not cure Danny. It only just made him worse. So when he was in Sarasota, he broke into the home of Janet Frake, and he raped her. And Frake reportedly talked her way out of becoming his fourth murder victim, and Danny was there, like, wearing a mask, like, she didn't, she didn't see who he actually was, and he was never charged with this crime. So the next stop was Gainesville, and everything that happened in Gainesville, Florida, happened very fast. On August 24th, 1990, Danny broke into the home of Sonia Larson, who was 18, and Christina Powell, 17, and the two of them were both incoming freshmen at the University of Florida in Gainesville. Danny had followed them home, broke into their house, and simply overpowered them. They were two very young girls living away from home for the first time, and, you know, they weren't they weren't in a dorm. They had gotten a house together close to the university and unfortunately been stalked and followed by some guy. And like, this is one of those horrific things that, you know, we've talked about when women are walking around, how they have to be super aware of their surroundings. And it, Mm -hmm. it's not fair. And the fact that when women go outside at night, we have to think about everything and men can just go and just like walk down the street. But this is, this is exactly why women watch behind their back when they walk. When Danny was there, he covered both of their mouths with duct tape before he bound their hands. He forced one of the women to perform oral sex on him before he raped, stabbed, and killed her. He returned to Sonia's dead body and raped her again. So, you know, he engaged in necrophilia. He even cut off Sonia's nipples to keep them as a trophy for his actions. And after he was done, he positioned their bodies in very sexually suggestive positions for them to be found by someone else. And this this began his streak as the Gainesville Ripper. The very next day... Oh, shit. He did the same to 18-year-old Krista Hoyt before proceeding to also cut off her nipples and sever her head. Oh, fuck. He positioned her body, you know, up against the bed in a sitting position... And then he placed her head on a shelf so it looked onto the body. So this was, you know, a very harrowing discovery for the person who would find the body. Harrowing, disturbing, extremely gruesome. By now, the, the news of the murders had spread across the universities. And authorities were putting out as much information as they could to try to catch the suspect. And students were sleeping in groups. They took every precaution they could, you know... They would sleep in shifts. They would. There'd be a group of people. There'd be the people who are awake, up and watching. The people sleeping. They'd take turns. And so, you know, and that is if you could actually sleep. I don't think I yeah. could. Like, there's, there's no, no way. But two days later, on Monday, August twenty seventh, 
another pair of roommates were slaughtered by the serial killer. This time, it was Tracy Pauls and Rowling's first male victim, Manuel Taboada. Both of these victims were 23 years old. Danny stabbed Taboada more than 30 times while he slept and then proceeded to stab Tracy to death too. All of these murders occurred less than two miles from each other, and they're all around, like I said, the University of Florida, and this just injected a huge sense of fear in this entire neighborhood. You know, the university canceled classes for a week. Students bought baseball bats. They had them with them everywhere, and they didn't go anywhere alone, day or night. It didn't matter. Not a single person was alone. Students would triple lock their doors. You know, like I was saying, they slept in shifts. And by the end of August, thousands of students left campus and about 700 of them never came back because they were too scared. They they feared for their life. And it's just, I get it. I mean, if if this is happening and you're like trying and then it's still happening, it's like, nope, I'm out. I'm done. Especially if... if, It's like, I will transfer schools. I'm... No, this isn't happening. Yeah. And everyone was, you know, wondering who's going to be next. When is it going to happen? But... For some reason, it just stopped, and there never was a next victim. Across just three nights, in about, I think it was like four days, Rowling, known as the Gainesville Ripper, brutally murdered five students in a killing spree that just puzzled police investigators for the following year. Every time his weapon was a knife, he never used a gun, and investigating the crime scenes, police could not find enough evidence to implicate Danny. Instead of leaving duct tape on his dead bodies, he disposed of it in dumpsters to get rid of any fingerprints. He also used cleaning solvents on the dead bodies to remove any traces of semen. And some of the female bodies, like I said, were left in sexually suggestive positions, which was one of the only clues authorities had to Danny's method. But, you know, like I said, his dad's a cop. He learned... Like, he knew, he grew up with his father being a police officer, so evidence was something he was fully aware of. And again, this is the 90s. Like, we know about DNA. We know about fingerprints. He's cleaning up his semen. It's, I mean, this is one of those really scary killers that is extremely mentally disturbed, but knows how to cover his tracks. And that is... Very methodical and... Yeah. Yeah. So all the while, Danny continued to steal from homes and gas stations until he was finally caught in Ocala after a high-speed chase. He was wanted for the robbery of a Winn-Dixie, and authorities at this time, they did not know he was the Gainesville Ripper. And this was on September 8th, so just a couple weeks after all these murders happened. And so he's brought into custody, but they have no idea that he is... They have him, but they... They don't know. I think they have this guy who robbed a grocery store. Wh- yeah. Which he did, and so Damn. they do have him. Yeah. But no idea there's any connection. So it was not until January 1991, more than four months after the murders, that police caught a break. Because of the similarities in the Shreveport and Gainesville cases, you know, one of those similarities being the very sexually suggestive positions that the bodies were left in, Florida investigators sought DNA of prisoners from Shreveport who were incarcerated. And through this, they found Danny Rowling's DNA and that it was similar enough to the DNA that was left at the Gainesville murder scenes to charge him with murder. So okay, remember how I said like he had been doing time in Shreveport, like he was always in and out of prison, like obviously he has a record. And yeah. so they just happened to find his DNA and it wasn't a perfect match. I don't really know why, like maybe it was only a partial DNA um, that they had at the crime scene. Because like I said, he tried to clean up his DNA, so they probably didn't have a lot. Yeah. And if like, you know, some of the solvents he used may have like damaged, you know, the DNA or just made it a little less reliable. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But what they did find was enough to charge him with murder. So this DNA evidence It eventually triggered the Sarasota police to look into the rape of Janet Frake, and it was a match. That's when they found out Danny did that. So when Danny was initially suspected for all of this, even his own father, who, as I remind you, he shot. Had been, yeah. (laughs) He refused to believe that Danny could be the one behind all these brutal crimes. You know, he said he may be disturbed, but he ain't guilty of that. 
And his, well, his, he is. his dad's a retired police lieutenant. And, like, this is what he's telling the newspaper. And, obviously, I don't like his dad. He he beat his family. And he clearly didn't know his, his son. No, his dad's a piece of shit. Um, so, Danny did quickly confess to being the Gainesville Ripper. He was like, yep, that's me. So, Danny... Okay, Raven. That was, like, Raven from that So Raven's catchphrase. Yep, that's me. Mixing Disney Channel with the Gainesville Ripper. (laughs) (laughs) So, this podcast is, um, it is called True Crime and Disney, where we will intermix true crime cases with popular Disney movies. So, Ariel held his head underwater as he scratched and clawed at her. Some of her DNA was under his fingernails, and while Prince Eric soon died, the DNA under his fingernails would tell the full story. <laughs> Danny was eventually sentenced to death when the court found that his antisocial personality disorder did not diminish him of the responsibility for the crimes. And I will say, yeah. I feel like he had a little bit more than an antisocial personality disorder. Like, it seemed like he yeah. he had a lot of mental disturbances, but... You know, the court, however, before his verdict was announced, Rowling made frequent vocal performances, usually of love songs to his fiancée, Sandra London. So, yeah, he had a fiancée at the time. Um, But he's doing things like singing to her in the courtroom. Again, antisocial personality disorder. I'm not a psychiatrist, but I feel like there's more there. Yeah, no. I mean, if he's trying to put on a sequel to A Star is Born, like, at his murder trial... I'm not thinking... There's just... That's good. Yeah. Danny was executed in 2006, and just before he was executed, he was singing then, too. A total of 47 people witnessed his execution, which is double... that's a lot of people. Yeah, it's double the capacity of the viewing room. So that that room was packed. Right before he was executed is when Rowling confessed to the Grissom family murders. And he said, Lucifer told me eight souls for every year I'd done in prison. And if we do count that triple homicide of the Grissom family in his hometown of Shreveport, he did kill at least eight people. That's the ones we know of. Jesus. How many years had he been in prison? I'm not exactly sure because like I said, he was in and out of prison Between, you know, the 70s through the 90s. He just was in and out all the time. So I'm not exactly sure how he was doing his math because, you know, eight souls for every year. So if he killed eight people, that means one year. I'm pretty sure he did way more than one year uh, in prison. Yeah. Well, Well, considering, like, literally he was in prison for 15 years before he was executed. So. Yeah. No, that's true. That's true as well. I feel like I repeat this every time we have someone who is executed. I I don't like the death penalty. I don't like anyone dying, but I am glad he isn't hurting anyone else and isn't able to hurt anyone else. Same. And, you know, when you think about it, despite all of the huge media coverage that the Gainesville Ripper had, Danny was not actually caught for these murders. It was No, he was caught for the Winn-Dixie robbery. Yeah, yeah. It was only when he was arrested for that unrelated burglary that he confessed to some of the most horrific crimes in Florida's history. And Jesus. Like that is one thing that is so scary that, you know, the police were trying to catch him, but because of how knowledgeable he was at cleaning up this crime scene, he wasn't caught for the murders. It was just the fact that he was doing a whole bunch of other shit and he got caught for that. And then he finally was just like, yep, it's me. By the way, I'm the Gainesville Ripper, in case you're wondering. So, yeah, that is the serial killer that the movie Scream is based on. Danny Rowling, the fucking Gainesville Ripper. I'm really excited for you to get into your case, so tell me about yours. So the case that I'm doing is the case that Vicky mentioned to us and was one that I had thought I knew about. Right. But I had the location wrong in my mind. And I knew about it because um, there's an episode in the first season of American Horror Story that is based off of this case as well. What? And mine is the case... Yeah. Oh. So mine is the case of the murderer Richard Speck. I am really interested to see how you present this case because I know a little bit about it. But I'm ready for you to tell me more. It's real fucked up. 
Uh, yeah. So the sources I used were Thought Catalog, All That's Interesting, Encyclopedia Britannica, and Biography. Which, this might be the second episode in a row I've used Encyclopedia Britannica. I think it is. So, Richard Speck was born on December 6th of 1941 in rural Illinois, and he was the seventh of eight children. He was very close with his dad, who worked as a logger, farmer, and a factory worker. But when Speck was three years old, his father died of a heart attack. So within just a couple of years, Speck's mom became just enamored with this guy who had a history of alcoholism and a 25-year history of arrest. Oh my god! That's a lot. That's a long history of being in jail. And so Richard endured ceaseless threats and insults from this man who would eventually become his newest stepdad. Yeah. So the family then relocated to the Dallas area. Oh shit, that's my area. And there they allegedly drifted between 10 low-rent apartments during the next dozen years. So it was like one after another. Yeah. And during one fight with this drunken stepdad that he had grown to just hate... Speck allegedly accidentally hit himself in the head with a hammer, which later on would cause him to speculate that he may have given himself brain damage. Getting hit in the head, head injury, that's a serial killer thing. Yeah. So throughout these years, Speck was kind of a shit student. He refused to wear glasses that he needed to be able to see, and he refused to speak in class due to his anxiety. He wound up having to repeat the 8th grade and eventually dropped out of school altogether after failing the second semester of his freshman year of high school. Oh, of high school. Gosh, I thought you were going to say college. Dang. But also, his his social anxiety and his, you know, being a poor student was not the only shit that was going on with him. He'd also began drinking and skipping classes at the age of 12. Oh my, Wow. Both of ours have the unfortunate use of minors with, I mean, mine had drugs too, but drugs and alcohol. Like, oh. Yeah. So about a year later, when he was 13, he got the phrase, born to raise hell, tattooed on his left arm. 13? At 13. And he just proceeded to get himself arrested dozens of times for crimes ranging from disturbing the peace to an incident in 1965 of aggravated assault for attacking a woman in the parking lot of her apartment building with a 17-inch carving knife. Oh my god! And though she escaped, he was arrested and was given a 16-month sentence, but he wound up being released after six months due to an error. What kind of error? So, part of his sentence was he had been arrested previously and was on parole. Yeah. So with his new sentence, he was going to be serving 16 months concurrently with a six month parole violation. But after the six month parole violation thing, they just accidentally released him. Oh, that's great record keeping yeah. for you. Yeah. Through this time, he's, I think he's 19 yeah. now after he's out. And he met this woman at the Texas State Fair. Uh, she was 15 at the time. Oh, And she got pregnant. Yeah. And so they got married and they had a daughter together. But with all this, he was an absentee husband and father. He he wasn't there. Yeah. But when he was there, it wasn't a good thing. His wife lived in fear of him. Oh, no. And during their marriage, he was arrested for theft, robbery, fraud, and assault on just multiple occasions. And so, fearing for her life, his wife filed for divorce and took full custody of their daughter. Good, I'm glad she got full custody. Yeah. After this, it kind of sent Speck off of the deep end. His family was like, you're a dangerous person. I don't feel safe around you, and left him. And so now he's like, I mean, he's going off the deep end. He's spiraling. Yeah. And one thing that he would often say to people was that one day he'd do something so heinous that he'd make headlines for it. Oh, that's really eerie. 
Yeah. I hate yeah. that. I hate that. I hate that. So in January of 1966, Speck was arrested for stabbing a man at the bar where his new girlfriend worked. Okay. And his mother, who, like his sisters, were very overprotective to the point of enabling him, was able to get this assault charge pled down to a simple $10 fine for disturbing the peace. For stabbing someone. $10 fine. fine? Are you kidding me? And this is 1966, so that $10 is actually 20 Are you kidding me? Oh my yeah. god. No. Yeah. Yeah, $10 fine. Well, clearly, um, uh, she argued well. Then, two months later, in March of 66, Speck burglarized a store and stole a car. And so police issued a warrant for his arrest. They're like, no, we're taking this motherfucker yep. in. And so, to help him avoid arrest, one of his sisters drove him to a bus station where he took a one-way trip to Chicago. Chi-town. Remember, he was... Oh, God. Yeah. He was born and raised in Illinois, and so he still has family there. I think some of his older sisters still live there. So, once he got back to his former hometown of Monmouth, Illinois, Mm -hmm. he became enraged to learn that his ex-wife had remarried only two days after granting him a divorce. Oh my god, that's so soon. So, he was like, okay, well, she was cheating on me. Which, I mean, you were an abusive little asshole, so... Not that cheating is okay, but, like, you know what's worse than cheating? Being an abusive fuck. Yep. So I uh, totally agree. I'm glad she moved on. So, after staying in different boarding houses, he began roaming the town's dive bars drinking himself into oblivion and became obsessed with these feelings of betrayal. And at the end of March, he'd been briefly detained for threatening a man with a knife during a bar fight. So he's just doing the same shit now in Illinois. Yep. In early April, a 65-year-old woman named Mrs. Virgil Harris was blindfolded, bound, and raped by a tall white man that she described as very polite, and spoke very softly with a southern drawl. After committing the rape, he robbed some of the things of her house and stole the $2.50 that she'd earned that night from babysitting a friend's kid. Okay, that is literally such a low blow. Yeah. She she made $2.50. And he had to steal that from her. Yeah, which at best, inflation rates would be like stealing $10 from someone today. I know, exactly. So it's like, oh cool, it's gonna get him like, maybe a meal. A shitty one, but just like... That's so messed up. I mean, also like, bound and raped her, which is fucking horrifying and awful. Yeah, I mean, all of that is horrifying, and I I hate it. I hate him. One week later... A female barmaid in Montmartre, Illinois, was found dead behind the tavern where she worked. And she died from a ruptured liver (gasps) caused by a blow to the abdomen. Oh my god. And Speck, who was someone who was known to have frequented the bar, was questioned repeatedly by police. And he wound up packing his bags and leaving to evade further questioning on April 19th. And the shitty thing, just about an hour after he left, police arrived at his room to discover a radio and jewelry that had been reported missing from Miss Virgil Harris's house. So they are hot on his trail. Yeah. For the next few months, he would bounce between living at the Chicago apartment of his married sister, who happened to be a nurse... And the Michigan apartment of a nurse's aide that he'd befriended. And just also various other low-rent facilities. Mm -hmm. And as summer raged on, he found himself unable to secure a job. And his sister and her husband finally had enough of it and kicked him out of their Chicago apartment on July 11th. He spent that day drinking himself into a stupor and then dragged a... 53-year-old woman that he'd met at a bar into his room and raped her and stole her 22 caliber handgun. So at 11 p.m. on July 13th, 1966, after spending the day 
drinking whiskey and shooting up heroin for the first time in his life. Okay. So, you know, just escalating things. Speck broke into a townhouse on East 100th Street in South Chicago that was being used as a nurse's dormitory. Oh my god. First he knocked on the door and a Philippine-born nurse, Corazon Amoro, answered the door Mm -hmm. and he just pushed past her into the house. So... Once he got in there, he held the seven women that he met at knife point, and he tore a bedsheet into strips and bound them one by one. He later claimed that he intended just to rob them, but he became enraged after one of the nurses spit in his face and said that she'd be able to identify him in a police lineup. After this, he's pissed. So after marching one of these bound nurses into another room, Speck was startled when two more nurses arrived home, and he just went berserk and stabbed and strangled all three of them. So the two that arrived and the one he was taking, yeah. He just, like, stabbed all of them? Yeah, stabbed and strangled and killed all of them. Oh my god, because it sounds like it started out with the first one that maybe he wouldn't go that batshit crazy, but the other two surprised him, and he was like, nope, bye. Over the next few hours, one at a time, each of the nurses took them to a separate room and then torture and kill them. And there were like seven of them, uh, right? Yeah. Oh my god, what is wrong with this guy? And after each murder, he would wash all the blood from his hands and then just come back to the group and grab another person. That's sick. His final victim, he raped with a foreign object before killing her. Mm. And she was the only one who he raped. And after this, he left eight dead victims and a crime scene covered in his fingerprints. Yeah. He does not seem like the type of killer who was trying to protect his identity. No. So his murder victims were Nina Jo Schmael. Uh, She was a cat-loving Elvis Presley fan who was described as a good student, well-liked, quiet, but with a sense of humor. Oh my god, I feel like I could totally relate to her. Patricia Ann Matusik who was born to working-class immigrant parents on Chicago's South Side and was described as sweet, assertive, funny, and full of life. Pamela Lee Wilkening, who only days before the murder had called her mom to tell her that she was too busy to come home and visit that weekend. Oh, God, uh, no. And that was the last uh, her mother would hear from her. That breaks my heart. Mary Ann Jordan, who friends described as having a wicked sense of Irish humor. Suzanne Bridget Ferris, who is described as pretty, perky, and popular. And her dad lovingly called her Cookie. Valentina Passion, who was one of three Filipina exchange students living in the dorm. And she'd only arrived in the U.S. two months earlier. Merlita Gargulo, who was another uh, Filipina exchange student. And she'd been described as quiet, shy, hardworking, efficient, pretty, and blessed with a rich singing voice. Mm -hmm. And Gloria Jean Davey, who was his final murder victim. God. And she was remembered as driven, independent, intelligent, headstrong, poised, creative, and snippy when she didn't like what you were doing. What Speck failed to realize was that Corazon Amoro the nurse who answered the door when he first got there, had managed to hide under a bed. And she stayed hidden under this bed until 6 a.m. So hours after he'd left, she was hiding while all of this was happening. Oh my God. Once she was sure that he was gone and not coming back, she bolted from her hiding place to the nearest window and screamed, they're all dead. My friends are all dead. Oh God, I'm the only one alive. And she continued screaming until police arrived. That is so horrific. I, I can't even begin yeah. to imagine being in that type of situation where everyone I'm living with is gone and I had somehow figured out how to survive the situation. Like, yeah. oh my God. So having basically no money... 
and terrified to leave town on public transportation because he knew police would be on high alert looking for the person who did this. Yeah. Speck spent the next few days just drinking heavily and spending time with sex workers. The night after this mass murder, he jokingly pretended to slit a bartender's throat. That's not a so, joke. you know, obviously he's feeling so remorseful about what he's Clearly. done. And on July 16th, after the news hit the papers that Corazon Amoro had positively identified Speck to police, he attempted suicide at his house. Because she not only met him at the door, but saw him and was like, this who it is. She knew exactly who it was. You know, she was the first person to see him. She registered all of that remembered it because she had to hear the suffering of all her housemates. So, of course she remembered who he was. So once it got out that they knew they were looking for Speck, he tried to kill himself. And he was taken to a hospital. And there, an emergency room physician noticed the tattoo on his arm, born to raise hell, and called the cops. Because that tattoo had been mentioned in the newspapers as, like, his identifying thing. And this is why tattoos can ID you always. Mm-hmm. Like that's an I mean, it's honestly used in identifying victims that that oh, are yeah. unknown, that are like Jane Doe's or John Doe's. They use the tattoos that are on their body because someone may have seen that and or someone may know that you have that tattoo. And when they describe you as like, oh, this person has like brown hair and green eyes, that may not be enough. But when it's like, oh, and they have like this eagle tattoo on their forearm that, you know, Mm -hmm. like it's more of an identifier. So at the hospital, police arrested him. And in 1967, Speck was tried and convicted of all eight murders because Not only was the fingerprint evidence conclusive, but there was also the dramatic testimony of Amuro. When the prosecutor asked her if she could identify the killer, she got up from her witness seat, walked right up to Speck, nearly touching him, and said, this is the man. Oh my god, that is really dramatic. Because most people would just like point to him and be like, that's him. Mm -hmm. She fucking got out of the box and was like, this motherfucker... This is the guy. She, yeah. She went to his face and was basically like, I want you to know I'm fucking putting you away for what you did to my friends. Yeah, because she answered the door. Like, she is the person mm-hmm. that clearly knew his face because he came in being all presumptuous and shit. And she was like, no, I know who you are. And I want everyone in this courtroom to know I know who you are. I kind of love her. Same. 100% same. So the trial of Speck was a national sensation. And it was one of the first times in the 20th century in the United States that someone had killed so many people at random. Wow. You know? Yeah. That there just wasn't motive for why these people. Right. And after only 45 minutes of deliberation... The jury came back with a guilty verdict. They were like, no, we know it. We know it was him, basically. They yeah. spent that 45 minutes filling out the paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> Initially, he was given a death sentence, but this was reduced in 1971 when the Supreme Court ruled that people opposed to the death penalty had been unconstitutionally excluded from the jury. So, what? So they basically, the prosecutors stacked the jury with people who were all pro-death penalty. Oh. While excluding people that were against it for that reason. And it, it was done in an unconstitutional way. Yeah. Um, so that was struck down, and his sentence was changed to eight consecutive terms of 50 to 150 years. So basically, the rest of, of his course, life. Of course, yeah, absolutely. The rest of his life. And it's one of those situations where... He gets, quote-unquote, life without getting life, but it stacks up mm-hmm. to that to where, like, any type of probation or whatever will never well, get him it's, out. Yeah, and it's consecutive, so he very likely One could after the have other. a, you know, a thousand-year sentence. Exactly. 
Honestly, I feel like something like that is almost in our judicial system more than a life sentence because we've talked about it. Like life sentence actually has a year associated with it. And so when a criminal has done something and they just stack it on top of each other consecutively, it's more time than Mm -hmm. a life sentence. So it's, it's, it's truly like the mark of you are literally going to be in prison until the day you die. Yeah, I mean, because in the case where someone is serving a thousand-year prison term, you know, even if they go through hoops and get their sentence reduced by 20 years, that doesn't mean anything. Exactly, and I think that's really important, because we've talked about so many cases where people are convicted of a lot, and yet somehow get out. And this is just an example of the way our system can keep someone in that should be yeah so speck served his sentence at stateville correctional center in illinois and throughout his time there he regularly got caught with drugs and moonshine and he was refused parole a number of times oh dang and on december 5th of 1991 the day before his 50th birthday richard speck died of a heart attack in 1996 oh Five years after his death. Uh, Yeah, it's not over yet. There's still... I know, sorry. I thought that was the end, and it's not. Nope. So five years after he died, a TV journalist made public a prison video, which showed Speck taking drugs and engaging in sex with another inmate during the 80s while he was an inmate at Statesville Correctional Institute. And, I mean, first off, the fact that it got released is a huge fucking issue and breach of privacy on every part. Absolutely. But in the video, he casually admits to the killing of the nurses <gasps> and describes the strangulations oh, in some detail and bragged about the strength that it required to kill someone in this manner. What? And at one point, a prisoner who was behind the camera asked him why he killed the eight student nurses because... There's still never been a motive. And to that, he just laughed and said, it just wasn't their night. Oh my god, that's sick. That is the case of the murderer Richard Speck, who broke into the nurse's dorm in Chicago and murdered eight innocent women. He is so messed up. I can't even begin to think of words to describe the emotions I'm feeling right now because that is so messed up. And even his, like, prison confession, weird, what you just described, that's so hateful. Like, he literally did not give two shits about what he did. He's like, oh, yeah. Oh, I killed him. Whatevs. So I'm guessing you wanted to jump in a postmortem. Yes. And I want you to go first. Well, I will say... If we are thinking of victim count and impact on society, I absolutely think yours tops this episode because it was a group of nurses who were living in a home together, going to school, and they're nursing students. And so they're the people who are thought to save people. And unfortunately, Mm -hmm. they became victims of someone who wanted to destroy them. And it's horrific. See, I have to disagree completely. Really? I think because of the brutality of your case, the direct impact... I mean, this entire college campus and town felt under siege. For days. slept in shifts. I feel like walking... Like, staying in groups is one thing, but I feel like that's... You know, kind of like level one alert. Like, you know, shit's going down. Let's be like, don't be alone. Sleeping in shifts and like buying extra locks for your doors and the store selling out of baseball bats and everyone carrying them around is just a whole nother level of societal impact that. I mean, changed this college and this town forever. So also the brutality of it. I mean, decapitating one of his victims God, and setting her head on the shelf. I mean, like like you said, just the, how horrifying that must have been for the person who discovered that. 
I think your case absolutely takes this one. Honestly, hearing you recap it, I agree. Um, I think because of like, you had just finished and I was like, God, it's, this is so brutal and intense, but mine was as well. Oh, yeah. And so... They're both th- fucking horrifying. Well, and that's like we, what we talked about the at the beginning of the episode is that dormitory murderers are brutal. They're scary. They're abrupt. Mm-hmm. They're sudden. And they're random. Yes. They're and that's horrifying. Just, yes. But I will say, after hearing your... <laughs> this is funny, because it's like you justified my case more than I did. But hearing your rationale, I'm like, absolutely. <laughs> Both of ours were super fucked up. But I will... I'll, I'll take mine as the most intense. And I'll let you pick next week's episode topic. <laughs> First off, again, Vicky, I want to give you a huge gigantic thank you for this case and this topic thank you so if you enjoyed this episode be sure to rate and review us on apple podcasts it's the best way to get the word out let others know that you enjoyed this and we really appreciate your love also make sure to like and follow us on social media we're on facebook instagram and twitter also check out our website bloodandwinepodcast.com uh you can check out our merch store we have a bunch of different t-shirts bags everything and with that this is blood and wine signing off xoxo bye you guys bye